Hi, Tony Hines here, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Great to be here. Well, today I want to explore the role of consultants, and I also want to see whether the proliferation of business schools around the globe has created more consultants than we need. So stay tuned. Now, whatever the reason you employ management consultants, you have to say consultants can perform an important task and provide a valuable contribution to the organisation. But you can also say that management consultants are bought in for a variety of reasons. It can be technical support. It can be to move a change programme along. It can be to bring resources or new ideas, particular skills that you don't have in your organisation and buy in those skills quickly. Or it can simply be, as one manager told me a long time ago, the reason we brought you in is because you can say the things that we want to say, but they won't listen to us, but they will to you. The global consulting industry in 2020, according to Statista, was worth 160 billion US dollars. Now, the management consultant market in 2023 in the world is worth over 250 billion US dollars. And it's a lucrative business. And there are major hubs in the United States and the United Kingdom. There are over 700,000 consulting companies operating globally. There are nearly 2 million management consultants in the United States in 2023. 38,000 consultants work for McKinsey alone. In 2022, the figure for growth was 25%, according to the Management Consulting Association in the UK. And the market size... £18 billion. So it's gone up considerably, close to $24 billion US dollars. According to the Management Consulting Association in the UK, there are some 63,000 professionals. And when we look at the percentages involved in particular service offerings, 10% in strategy, 13% in operations, 15% in finance and risk, People and change, 10%. Technology, 28%. Another, 24%. In Europe, it's about 19% in strategy, 21% in operations, 9% in finance and risk, 16% in people and change, 20% in technology, and 15% other. And when we look at the different types of service user, financial services, about 33%, public sector 21%, and consumer and industrial products around about 14%. So that gives you some idea of the scope in the United Kingdom for consulting services. A new book by Mariana Mazzucato and Rosie Collington, The Big Con, is the title of the book. Say that our economies are reliant on companies such as McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, Bain & Company, PwC, Deloitte, KPMG and DY, amongst others. It stunts innovation, obfuscates corporate and political accountability and impedes our collective mission of halting climate breakdown. 
according to Matsukuto and Collington. In the big con, they describe the confidence trick that the consulting industry practices in contracts with hollowed-out and risk-averse governments and shareholder-value-maximizing firms. It increased from the 1980s and 1990s after reforms by both the neoliberal right and third-way progressives, and it thrives on the ills of modern capitalism, from financialization and privatization to the climate crisis. They say it's possible because of the unique power that big consultancies wield through extensive contracts and networks as advisors, legitimators and outsourcers, and the illusion that they are objective sources of expertise and capacity. To make matters worse, our best and brightest graduates are often redirected away from public service into consulting. In all of these ways, the big con weakens our business, infantilizes our governments and warps our economies. They debunk the idea that consultancies always add value to the economy. This book is well worth a read, and if you're in consultancy, I recommend it to you. Of course, it's only one side of the story, and we have to be careful not to suggest that all management consultancy is scurrilous activity. Much of it does add value for organisations in the public and private sector, and it can be an opportunity to learn about new techniques, new tools, new ways of doing things, and consultants do have a wealth of experience, no matter what you think about the claims by the book. The authors are clear to point out it would be foolish to blame consultancies for all the problems that advanced capitalism has created. The pristine PowerPoints, copy and paste formulas for strategy, and often ineffective tools that many consultancies employ are the problem. A Financial Times review of the book was done by Professor Diane Coyle. Diane Coyle says that the book How the Consulting Industry Weakens Our Businesses, Infantilizes Our Governments and Warps Our Economies, which is the subtitle of the big con, encapsulates the charge sheet. And the focus is almost entirely on the UK, a pioneer of outsourcing by the public sector to private consultants. But these same issues do arise elsewhere. The blame is not pointed at the consultancies themselves, though. It's pointed at successive UK governments. They recommend strengthening the civil service, rebuilding internal capacity within government, improving the process of contracting and evaluating outsourced outcomes, and want consultancies to disclose conflicts of interest when they bid for public work. They blame much of the failure on outsourcing, IT included, and on incompetence. And certainly our evidence from the pandemic, I think, has suggested that government outsourcing can be seriously problematic and very expensive, and it does need some attention. Now, one of the interesting facts that came out of the book, The Big Con, was that in 1979, when Margaret Thatcher came to power as Prime Minister, the UK government spent about $6 million on consultancy. But 11 years later, by 1990, they were spending 40 times that sum, about $240 million on consultancy a year. Between 2017 and 2020, the UK government spent about £450 million on management consultants. And they were the mainly Brexit consultants. People brought in to comment on Brexit and consult about matters relating to Brexit. Additionally... 
600 million was spent on COVID-19 contracts. And the major beneficiaries, or the recipients of all this consultancy work, including the COVID contracts, were the big four consulting firms, PwC, EY, Deloitte, and KPMG. So more and more, there's been more reliance on consultants since Margaret Thatcher's time in 1979. So over the past 40 years, the spend on management consultants has risen immensely. Now, of course, if you want to find out more about this particular topic, the big con, you'll need to go and read the book by Mariana Mazzucato, who's Professor of Economics at UCL, and Rosie Collington, who's a researcher at UCL. Now, one of the things that interests me, particularly having spent some time as a professor in a business school, is that I just wonder, as well as all the good things that we do in business schools to educate people, what damage we might do by training people, educating people about particular management tools that they then go on to use without any warning signs and health checks in the application when they become, perhaps in their career, a management consultant. And that's what we're talking about right now here today. And I just think there is obviously a virtuous circle here. Or should there be a vicious circle? I think it's a vicious circle, isn't it? Virtuous circle is doing good, but a vicious circle is one that spirals down, where people are taught the tools and techniques, and then they go off and apply them formulaically to a particular problem inside businesses, inside government, and perhaps give poor advice, inadequate advice, or just the wrong advice to people when they're supposed to be giving advice that improves things. Now, I say this with some inside knowledge because in my earlier career, I spent some time working for one of the big four accountancy firms as a consultant. And it often struck me when we were going out on assignments that there'd be some preconceptions about the problem and perhaps even some preconceptions about the solution. And there are fads in management. Now, if we think of management fads and fashions through time, there's been lots of them. All the motivational theories, Hertzberg's hygiene factors, Maslow, the hierarchy of needs, McGregor's theory X and theory Y, and so on. And they're generated out of different types of research. So I can remember, I'm old enough to remember management by objectives, matrix management, theory Z, there was the one-minute manager, time management, all the excellence in management, Tom Peters, and so on, management by wandering around, total quality management, business process re-engineering, delaying, empowerment, 360-degree feedback, business process re-engineering, teamwork, quality standards, ISO 9000, 9001, etc., Six Sigma, knowledge management, design thinking, lean thinking, transformative leadership, the 7S framework, the McKinsey 7S framework, the Toyota management system, agility, flexibility, enterprise systems, best practice, benchmarking. And then in strategy, we had all the Boston Consulting Group matrix, 
and lots of different four-box matrices, the ends of matrix, looking at diversity and growth options and the risks involved. And then we had Michael Porter with his value chain analysis, five forces, looking at strategic direction. There were all the efficiency fads and work study and organizational methods, uh, Frederick Speedy Taylor, all that stuff. And these things never go away. They just get reinvented, refocused, reused, reapplied in different guises, new names. And there are many others that take hold and you can think of lots of them. You can think of lean thinking, for example. You can think of business re-engineering. You can think of the Boston Consulting Group growth share matrix. You can think about the various tools that are applied. And people quite often get wedded to particular ways of thinking about a problem and how to solve it. And if you've been successful in one organization by applying particular tools to solve a particular problem, then of course, you might decide to employ them again. Because that's only human, isn't it? But of course, it can do damage because it might not be appropriate. And even worse, it can stop learning in the process. I can think back to the early days of working in business schools when the courses were made up of different discipline areas and MBA programs would be some marketing, some finance, and it would all be capped off by strategy. And it was strategy that everybody wanted to do because they knew that strategy would get them a job with a management consulting firm. Well, when it comes to management consultancy, we can think about how those people doing consultancy are trained. And of course, a lot of that training comes about in universities through business schools. And anyone who's been to a business school, people listening to this maybe, or students listening to this, will know that when you go to business school, you do a number of modules and you'll have strategy units in there and you'll learn all about Growth Share Matrix, Boston Consulting Group, the McKinsey 7S model, all types of different tools and techniques that can be used to try and understand business processes, business strategies, and business operations. And it's a toolkit, it's a tool bag. And generations of students have gone through business schools all over the world, and they've picked up the tool bag. And often in the tool bag, they're not really told how sensitive those models are, how useful those models are in contemporary contexts, because there's just an assumption that you can use this one-size-fits-all toolkit to go out there and try to advise businesses about their strategic direction, their operations, and all kinds of different things. And of course, once you've used the toolkit, you might be wedded to particular techniques that you think are pretty important, and you create bias in the process because you think, oh, that's great, you know, the, I've got the cash cows and I can understand the dogs and so on in the Boston consulting matrix. Or you think, yeah, I'll just do an environmental audit and then I'll do my SWOT analysis and I'll, yeah, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, 
and so on and so forth. But of course, life is a bit more complex than four-box matrices and business school fixes, as we all might know. Certainly those of us that have been out in industry for some time. And therefore, what we have to ask ourselves is, is business school an education or a training to be a consultant? Well, I'm sure most business school professors would say, you have to understand the tools and techniques and you have to know about different arrangements in business so that you can understand business processes, business strategy and so on. And no one would disagree with that. But what you might take issue with is the simplistic application of some of those tools to situations where they're not really relevant. And there needs to be some wisdom in the process. And people need to think about what they're using and be critical. And it may be that the tool that you really like is not appropriate to the particular problem that you're looking at or to the particular industry or to the particular firm. And there's a uniqueness that we need to pick up on through our sensitivities. And it really is more about our own approach, our own understanding of the issues through talking to people, by looking at the data, by quantifying and by simply giving more thought, more critical thought to what we do. Now, a few years ago, I read a book called Confronting Managerialism, How the Business Elite and Their Schools Threw Our Lives Out of Balance. And it was by Robert R. Locke and J.C. Spender. And this is a very interesting book. It's published by Z Books. And it's well worth a read because it talks about the introduction of managerialism and business school education from 1920 to 1970 and the failure of management science and the U.S. business school model. U.S. managerialism and business schools fail to find their moral compass, managerialism and the decline of the U.S. automobile industry, and of course, managerialism, business schools, and the financial crisis. And I think it was probably stimulated by the failure of economics to address some of the issues in the financial crisis back in 2008. Probably came through that route. Although I haven't spoken to the author, so I don't know, but I'm just assuming this. No, it's not the first time that uh, a thesis talking about how business schools influence thinking about management. It's a scathing critique. It shows how business managers, once well regarded as custodians of the economic engine, now seem more like robber barons of the 1880s. In effect, responsible management has given way to managerialism and the elite caste of businessmen disconnected from ethical considerations, call the shots. And this argument that's made essentially focuses on a narrative that traces the decline of the American business after World War II and concludes that socially responsible management is extinct. It talks about the failure of managers to deliver and part of the blame is on arrogance and of course the education system in terms of business schools. A few years later there was a book by Duff MacDonald, a New York Times best-selling author and he wrote something called The Golden Passport which talks about Harvard Business School and the limits of capitalism and the moral failure of the MBA elite. So here we have the criticism 
developing further. The criticism is focused on one school, which is Harvard Business School, and it says it's powerful, influential, and of course has extensive networks into the largest corporations around the globe. And of course, an army of consultants has been trained, either at Harvard Business School or in the model that was developed by Harvard Business School about how to teach management. I'm going to read a brief passage from the introduction to the Golden Passport. And it says, if all you do at Harvard Business School for two years is spend two hours on every case and try to answer all the discussion questions, it's not going to change your life. For a whole semester, for example, the school is basically bought and paid for by consulting firms. You can't go to lunch without seeing someone from Bain, Boston Consulting Group or McKinsey. It's not a bad thing to work in consulting or finance, but it's a terrible thing to tell 1,800 people who are purportedly the brightest minds of their generation that they have only two career choices. In fact, it's unconsciously unimaginative. So if clear evidence was needed that the purpose of the Harvard Business School education is to train people for consulting and for finance, there it is. So do we think that a business school education basically prepares people to be management consultants? Well, the answer is, yes, it does. And if you don't become a management consultant straight after the MBA, the likelihood is you're going to move into finance in some capacity. And it may be that you return later to consultancy. So there is a supply chain, if you like, an education supply chain of consultants being developed along the same lines in business schools, not just at Harvard, but the influence of Harvard and the approach taken by Harvard is influential worldwide. I doubt if there are many business schools that don't use Harvard cases or other case studies to address business problems as part of the teaching program on MBA programs, because the model is well established and it has a track record, and even in the less prestigious schools, they will follow the model. Henry Mintzberg wrote a book called Managers, Not MBAs, and he made the point quite strongly that what we ought to be developing in a business school are managers, and it wasn't about the MBA per se. And in that book, he said there are many different ways to train managers, but they needed understanding of the practice. And I think that may be missing from the general business school model, because the practice comes through academic reading, or case method, discussion groups, and not the doing. Well, I began the episode by saying we'd look at the role of management consultants. And I did that. I looked at the size of the industry, how many people are employed in management consultancy, and the shape of management consultancy in two major markets in the United States and the UK and around the globe. And it's worth saying that I also believe that we probably don't have too many management consultants because the market is obviously growing. So demand is there. The question is whether demand ought to be there in the way it is presently. And some people think not. Some people think that we've taken away the responsibility to manage the firm and given it to management consultants. And it's worth giving that a thought before you press the button to invite people in. With regard to business schools, their role in the 
proliferation of management consultancy is pretty well embedded. And yes, business schools around the globe have shaped the nature of the industry as much as the industry itself has shaped what goes on in business schools. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.